willingness to act upon it. We look to you for that and so that you get the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, team, for leading us musically. <clears throat> Thanks, uh, I think, Jordan and Shaylee for leading us in other ways. Uh, it is good <laughs> to get together and to have fun and to celebrate who God is. And we do celebrate every Sunday by turning our attention to God's word in the Bible. We've been in a series of sermons. We're going to continue this morning through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them there, Matthew chapter 5. While you're doing that, I want to start this morning with a brief word from that great uh, philosopher and theologian, Dr. Seuss, who wrote a book uh, some decades ago that many of you are probably familiar with, titled Horton Hatches an Egg. Anybody remember that story? Yes, I'm probably dating myself, but you know what? I'm old enough now, I can just own it, all right? Um, Typical silly Seuss story, an elephant Horton is tricked by a lazy bird into sitting on her egg while she takes a quick break. Uh, So what actually ends up happening, she doesn't take a quick break, she abandons responsibility, heads to the beach, and just starts living it up (laughs) because she doesn't want to sit on an egg for months until her little baby chick hatches. Uh, Meanwhile, Horton the elephant stays with the egg, and you get this ridiculous picture of this (laughs) elephant uh, babysitting this bird's egg, Um, and he stays there because he gave his word. That's sort of the moral of the whole story, right? Even when it becomes clear that he's been misled and she's not going to be right back, but he stays because he promised he would stay. And as the story goes on, all sorts of crazy things happen. You know, he gets horrible weather, he's freezing cold, but he's not going to leave the egg. You know, and hunters come and capture him and and they like cut down the tree and put him on a wagon and haul him off, but he's not going to leave the egg. And he gets sold to the circus, but he's not going to, it just kind of goes crazy. And every time something new and bad happens, something even Worse than what's happened before, you know, we are led as readers to wonder, is this going to be the final straw? <laughs> is this, like, how much is too much? Is this going to finally be the, the event that makes good old little Horton renege on his word? And say, I know I promised to stay, but I didn't mean that, so I'm out. Because like all along, we would understand if he did. It's crazy what he's being uh, put up to. But he doesn't. He continues to stay faithful to his word, each time repeating his somewhat famous mantra, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. If you know it, say the rest of it with me. An elephant's faithful 100%. See, there are some other Dr. Seussites out there. I love it. Now, of course, in the end, it all ends happily ever after uh, the egg eventually hatches, and it actually uh, turns out to be an elephant with wings, because this is Dr. Seuss, not real life. Um, And a new little baby identifies with Horton rather than the lazy bird, Um, and so they go off together as a happy family, and she gets nothing because she was lazy, right? So that's the moral of the story. Well, good for him. (laughs) But I mentioned the story this morning because the issue of being true to one's word uh, is... Uh, no matter what the cost is, isn't just the stuff of children's stories and good fairy tales and fables. It's actually an issue for Jesus and his disciples, his followers as well. That's the subject of this morning's passage. Uh, We've mentioned that we're well now into the um, 
for lack of a better term, the practical part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is the vast majority of it. The Sermon on the Mount started with three sort of paragraphs, three topics that really formed the three main points that Jesus was making. This is sort of how he frames the Sermon on the Mount and helps us understand where he's going for the next three chapters. And so he's up there, his disciples have gathered around him, and he's now teaching his disciples relatively early on in his ministry what it's going to mean to be his disciples, what it's going to mean to be his followers. And this larger crowd gathers around and listens in. And so he's teaching his followers in the hearing of the crowds. And he starts off with three things. He says, first of all, we have to understand that God's world is invading our world. Hence the title of our sermon series, When Two Worlds Collide. And that's worth constantly pausing to remember. Even if you're a um, pretty churched Christian this morning, and even if that idea isn't brand new to you, it's an easy one to lose sight of, isn't it? But the reality is the biblical view of life is that we are living in the midst of two completely different worlds that have collided. God in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's uh, presence represents God invading the sinful world of man who has rebelled against God, his maker. God's world is invading our world, and because the two worlds and the two value systems are different, the clash is often a little bit rough. God lives for one set of values, and we as people tend to live for a different set. And so he introduces this idea through uh, what we know as the Beatitudes, where he's starting to list many of the value systems of the kingdom of God, which are so different than the values of this world. These two worlds are colliding. Uh, Next, Jesus told us that Christians, disciples of Jesus, that's what he's addressing directly, that their job in this world is to represent God and his world in the midst of this world. Images he used were the image of being uh, salt of the earth and the light of the world. Our task, if you're a follower of Jesus, our mission is to represent him, which is also worth pausing periodically and reminding ourselves, even if it's something you may have heard before, because again, it's easy to lose sight of. So often we're pursuing goals and, and agendas in life, like clipping our microphone cable in its right place. We're pursuing various goals and agendas, which are actually great and fine. We have family goals, we have career goals, we have things that we want to be doing, and even if we try not to load up every season of life with heavy expectations... It's impossible not to enter every season of life with some view of how we want it to go. And maybe your life is going pretty well and you feel good because you're accomplishing your goals. Maybe you're really frustrated because you feel limited or thwarted and unable to meet your goals. It is reassuring in either case to know that if you are a disciple of Jesus, your goals are not the main thing in your life. Even your family goals, as important as being a dad is, as much as I love it and as much as I celebrate it, that's not the core of who I am. And if I were not a father, I wouldn't be any less useful. The ultimate goal that I have as a disciple is to reflect the kingdom of my God in the kingdom of this world. We speak his message in our words and we embody it in how we live. Lastly, we have to look to Jesus to be um, able to do that. And that was the third principle that he, he used to frame the Sermon on the Mount before he even really dove in. Where he said, um, in the middle of chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, he says, I have come to fulfill the law, referring to the Old Testament teachings of God. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to accomplish the purpose that God gave, the, the reason God gave us the law in the first place. 
And we talked about what that was. Why did God give the ancient Israelites, that were his people back then, why did he give them the law? He gave them the law to show them how to live in a way that was distinctive. It was, it was going to be different than all the people groups around them so that their lives would reflect God's values and not the normal values of the cultures in their day. But the law didn't accomplish that purpose. It was just a list of rules, and the ancient Israelites had the same problem that all the other ancient people in the world had, which is the same problem all the modern people in the world have. We're sinners. Our hearts are desperately sinful. And so the law, the rules, were not enough to be able to accomplish that purpose. Jesus says, my job is to give you a new heart that will enable you to be the the, uh, ambassador for Christ that God has called you to be. So those are the three ideas that he started with. And then he says, now I'm going to apply these to so many different areas of your personal life and your religious experience and show you as a disciple what it may look like to be my follower. And so we've already seen him address various issues. Um, The extent to which we are angry with one another or vengeful and, and vindictive toward one another. He's addressed the topics of lust. He's addressed the topics of divorce. Today he addresses the topic of promises, making oaths, keeping our word. And he's going to show us how this works out as a disciple. He begins in verse 33 by saying, Again, you have heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, just let's pause there for a moment. Just a quick word of background, because things worked a little bit different culturally back then than they do now. So to understand what he's saying, it will help to understand a little bit of what was going on back then. Here, Jesus is once again, as he has done before, citing the Old Testament Um, We've seen him quote uh, the sixth and seventh commandments earlier in the Sermon on the Mount uh, about not murdering and about not committing uh, adultery. Uh, Now he's citing another part of the Old Testament, not from the Ten Commandments, but nonetheless one of God's laws or rules uh, in the Old Testament, particularly from Numbers chapter 30. There's a couple places that this command is mentioned, and that says this, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's the Old Testament. That was the rules the ancient Israelites had to follow. So basically God says, if an Israelite makes a vow, um, he's got to follow through with it. You've got to do what you have vowed to do. And in Leviticus chapter 19 Uh, elaborates on that even a little bit more specifically. God there says, you shall not, this is God speaking to the Israelites, you shall not swear by my name falsely. It's okay to swear by my name, but don't do it falsely, because if you do, you will profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Now, that Leviticus reference is kind of interesting because God there shows us why it was so important to him to tell his people, if you um, swear an oath or make a vow, you have to follow through with it. Why was that so important? Well, it was important because it sort of brings God's name into it. You see, this whole business like swearing an oath or making a vow feels a little bit odd or different to us. That's not like a normal part of our everyday experience in modern America. Um, We do still understand the idea of making vows. There's a few places even in our current society where that happens. Certainly, probably on a wedding day is is the most common place where a bride and a groom will exchange vows. Um, So, but you know, I mean, like how often does that happen? (laughs) Um, That's not gonna happen to most people very often. Or maybe if you go to court, 
Some courts will still make you swear on a Bible to tell the truth. Others don't use a Bible anymore because we're a kind of a religiously pluralistic society. But, but you typically have to take, if you're you know, called to testify in court, you make some kind of a promise, you take some kind of an oath to tell the truth um, before the law. It, it's a way of saying like, if I am found to be lying, may the court punish me. Like I am submitting myself to the authority of the court, which is supposed to lend credibility to your words. It, it's a way of getting people to believe that you mean what you say. And it was the same thing back then. It was fairly common for people back then um, to uh, swear oaths or take vows. That had nothing to do with swear words, like bad words. It had to do with, with making a formal pledge to um, you know, offer a certain sacrifice or do something to serve God. And if you were to swear by the Lord's name, what you were saying is, may God Almighty himself like, strike me down if I fail to follow through on this obligation whoa, he's really serious, right? I said I would do it. Oh, he might do it. May God strike me down if I don't do it. Whoa, he's really serious, see? So it was a way of kind of calling the authority of God down on yourself if you failed to show how serious you were about your words. So God says, if you swear by my name, the problem is you're now bringing me into your promise. And now my reputation is on the line. How so? Well, because if I swear by God's name that I will say, you know, sacrifice three lambs next week or whatever it is I say I'm going to do, and next week comes around and uh, lo and behold, I don't have as many lambs as I thought, and so I decide not to do it. I don't follow through. But you all heard me swear by God Almighty that I would do it, and then I choose not to do it. What is that saying about my view of God? His judgment obviously isn't very scary, is it? Like it sounded impressive when you said it, but clearly you're not really afraid of God's judgment because you just broke your oath. So clearly God's either impotent or he's weak or he doesn't care. He's not gonna judge you even if you sin. You see, no matter how you spin it, it says something bad about God. So God says, don't profane my name. If you swear an oath or take a pledge, follow through on it. That was the basic Old Testament law. It's worth noting that the Old Testament never required the Israelites to take oaths um, or make vows. It was never a law. When you're in thus and such a situation, you must swear an oath. But it was something people did back then, and so there are several Old Testament teachings that sort of regulate it, that tell them if you do take an oath or a vow, that's fine, but you have to do it a certain way. Um, If you don't take one, that's fine too, but if you do, you have to do it a certain way. Well, that's what Jesus is referring to. But that had been written 1,500 years before Jesus' time. So now what had happened over time, of course, is that human beings, being the sinners that we are, and always seeking ways to get around certain rules, we had complicated the thing. Uh, the, The rabbis, the Jewish leaders, had parsed out various applications of this law over time. So people would start to say, okay, I get it, but basically if I swear a vow, I'm supposed to keep my word, okay, fine. But what about this kind of a situation? And it may, you know, for example, like, what if I, I vow to God to do something So I've already made my vow, but then I later either remember because I forgot or I realize because I didn't know that the thing I vowed to do is actually against God's law. (gasps) What do I do now? Pit two of God's commands against each other. I can't obey them both. Which one do I disobey? You see? What if I vowed as a new um, Jewish convert to um, sacrifice a pig and, and give the pork to the priests? I made my vow. Oh, and then later I realized that in the Old Testament, God outruled eating pork. I can't eat pork. I can't do that. So what do I do? See? 
And it may have even been that a lot of these questions initially were driven out of good motives. People are just trying to understand how to apply that truth in a complex world. But over time, then the rabbis had to come in and say, well, okay, if this happens and this happens, then you got to keep your vow. Now, if this happens, it can be considered an, an inappropriate vow, and so you're free to not keep it without violating. You know, and they would have to try to go parse all of this stuff out. A lot of these teachings are written in what's known as the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish rabbinical teachings that's also an ancient document, and it's fairly large. Uh, you can actually still read English translations of it today. Google is your friend. There's a whole section of the Mishnah that is designed, that, that addresses just this issue of making vows and oaths, and under what kinds of circumstances various oaths have to be kept, and under what circumstances is it free, uh, are you free to not keep an oath? Well, as that process starts, you can just sort of see where it goes. One generation's clarification becomes the next generation's exception to the rule, which eventually becomes the next generation's reason to question the whole rule in the first place. And over time, by Jesus' day, the first century Israelites had developed a fairly well-understood hierarchy of external authorities to which somebody could swear an oath to add weight to their words without technically swearing by God's name and therefore not violating the Old Testament law. I don't think this was written down. It was just kind of commonly understood stuff. But Jesus alludes to a few of these things in this passage. Some people would say, for example, I swear by heaven that I will do thus and such. Now, what did they mean by that? Well, they meant God, right? <laughs> I mean, even nowadays, we have this phrase, sometimes we'll say, like, heaven help us, you know? And what we really mean is, like, God help us. But, but I didn't say God, did I? I was swearing by heaven, not by God. So if I now break that vow, did I technically violate uh, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2? No, because I didn't swear an oath by the Lord's name. I swore an oath by heaven. So they might say, I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by Jerusalem was apparently another one of these things because Jesus mentions it, Jerusalem, the, the holy city of God. It was a way of trying to sort of appeal to the weight and the authority of God to add weight to your words without technically violating the Old Testament law just in case you didn't follow through. It was a way to hedge your bets, right? So there was this hierarchy. None of that had anything to do with the Old Testament, but there was this hierarchy. At the very top was the one vow you couldn't break. It was swearing by the name of God. Right? That was like the triple dog dare of vows, you know? There's like, I dare you to do something. I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. I double dare you. Oh, well, you double dare me. Well, now my manhood's on the line. I got to step up and do it now because you double dared me, right? I mean, it's silly. And then you can go all the way up to like the triple dog dare, which is like, it doesn't get any higher than that, even though it's technically breach of etiquette because you skipped over triple dare. Sorry, fans of the movie Christmas Story are with me. If you don't know that movie, just ignore me. We'll keep going. <laughs> but it is, it's the same kind of thing. It's just this sort of silly thing that we laugh at in a, in a movie that's a comedy about kids. You know, I dare you, I double dare you, I triple dare you, as if there's any kind of a difference. But that's the kind of thing that was going on. Well, I vow. Well, I double vow. Well, I triple dog vow, right? I and mean, that's the one that, oh, you can't break that one. But there's other lesser vows. That's the, 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 the situation into which Jesus is speaking. And so what he says about this whole thing is, what do we do about it? Well, he says, guys, just stop. <laughs> Let's just stop. Clearly, none of this has anything to do with even the letter of the Old Testament law, and it definitely misses the whole spirit 
of what God was trying to get to in the Old Testament. So he says, I tell you, don't, don't, uh, don't take an oath at all. In, in his day and in his context, he said, you know, it's probably better that my disciples just don't even swear oaths or take formal vows. The Bible never required you to anyway. And since it's become such a muddled, messy thing that, that's so now devoid of meaning, it's almost laughable, just don't even do it. What he does is he points out the silliness of that whole structure. In verse uh, 32, he says, uh, don't take an oath uh, either by heaven, for it is the throne room of God. What do you mean you swear by heaven? He's like, God is not stupid. Well, I didn't use his name. God is not a robot. Well, okay, he probably didn't say that because there weren't robots yet, but God is not a brainless lump of wood, right? I mean, you swear by heaven, God knows what you're saying and everybody else knows what you're saying too. You're not fooling anybody. Well, I swear by the earth while citing the Psalms. He says, well, heaven is God's throne and the earth is God's footstool. So you're, you're swearing by everything that's related to God anyway. Or I swear by Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place where the temple is and God's presence dwells. Listen, he says, all this is nonsense. To try to say that one vow is slightly less than these others, he's like, obviously in the spirit of the thing, we're all appealing to the authority of God. So he just shows sort of how silly the whole system is. And by doing so, he is doing the same thing he's done repeatedly and will continue to do through the Sermon on the Mount. And that is take the discussion from the superficial level, the technicality behavioral level, did I technically violate the letter of the law or not? And he's driving it down to the heart. He's driving it down to the heart. What's really going on inside? What are our motives? Where are our affections? What's driving us to say and do the things that we're saying and doing? He says, that's what God is interested in if you are one of his disciples. The ridiculous reality is that the Israelites had taken the very law that God had intended to use to make them a more truth-speaking people, a more promise-keeping people. They had taken that very law and twisted it around and used it to actually become a less promise-keeping kind of people. To swear a lesser oath, which kind of hedged my bets so I can break it if I really need to. Which violates the whole reason that God gave the law in the first place. On its face, it's kind of ridiculous. What is Jesus' alternative? What does he say for his disciples? Okay, if we're not going to run around vowing these vows or swearing these oaths because the system has gotten ridiculous, what should we do? And very simply and famously in verse 37, he says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or comes from the evil one. He said there's so many ways Satan is going to tempt you to be something less than a person of your word, but if you're one of my disciples, you recognize that temptation and you simply do what you say. Without an oath, without this formal ceremonial vow, if you make a promise, you keep it. You do what you're going to say. You become a person, a man or a woman of your word. The reason is because this is how God had always intended it to be. It reflects God. That's why God gave the law to the ancient Israelites in the first place, so that they, back in their day, would reflect him. Because God himself is a promise keeper. That's, that's essential to who he is. It's an essential part of his nature, of his character. He, he does 
what he says he's going to do. He fulfills every promise that he's going to make. He doesn't renege or back out or say, oh, well, I didn't exactly mean that, and under the circumstances, I can't, so therefore I'm out, and it's okay, right? We never have to worry about God doing that, which is important because the entire Christian life depends on it. God's nature as a truth teller, a promise keeper. Here's, here's what I mean. Think about this. In the Bible, the word faith, when you see it in the New Testament, faith um, or believe, they're synonyms, they mean the same thing, means in modern American English, the closest word is trust. That's what, that's what faith, have faith in God or believe in Jesus, that's what it means, trust. Trust God, trust in Jesus. That is, bank everything in your life your present, your future, your money, your relationships, your time, your eternity. Bank it all on God and who he is and on what he said. That's what the Bible means when it says have faith. Bank it all. It's a very specific meaning. It's not kind of a vague religious term. It's a very specific thing. Trust everything into what God said. And what did God say? Well, very simply, the core message of the Bible, the gospel, is that our sin separates us from God for eternity if it's not dealt with, and that's called hell. That is the destiny that is in front of every sinful man and woman, which is every man and woman. It also tells us we can't fix our sin problem on our own. I I can't make myself a better person. Well, I can make myself a little bit of a better person, but not enough to make up for my sin problem and get me to heaven. There's no way I could ever do that. God just tells me that. Fortunately, it also says that that's why Jesus came. Jesus' death on the cross was in our place. It's a historical fact that Jesus walked the earth and died. What the Bible adds to that is the the meaning behind it. It tells us he died as God in human flesh in your place and my place to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. Now, that doesn't guarantee my sins are paid for, but it now means they can be. The final step for me is to um, what the Bible calls repent. That is, turn away from a sinful, self-reliant life and consciously place my trust in Jesus Christ, ask him for forgiveness, and trust that his death is paying for my sins. I can spend eternity with God in heaven as if I never sinned once, all because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. That's the central message of of the Bible. That's what Christianity is that commitment to trust Christ for the forgiveness of my sins for all eternity. Now, here's the thing. Back to this issue of trust. The interesting thing about it is there is no um, independent third-party God verification agency anywhere. Everything I just said is a summary of what the Bible teaches. They're words. They're God's words given to us. But there is no group that um, goes out of this life and sits on the sidelines of hell and takes a look at who's there and makes notes on what got them there in the first place and then leaves hell and goes and sits on the sidelines of heaven and sets up shop right next to Peter at his check-in desk in front of the pearly gates and see, no, there's, sorry, there's no check-in desk. There's, Peter's not there, but they, they don't go to heaven and like see who's there and, and, and why they get in and then come back to earth with their full report saying, here's what we have independently verified how heaven and hell works and it either does or doesn't line up with the Bible. Oh, okay, well, I can trust God because the independent agency has verified that his words are true. No such agency exists. It couldn't. It couldn't. Which means 
All we have to go on is God's explanation, God's promises, God's words. So he tells us the appropriate response is have faith, trust them, bank on them. Now, we can't do that if we don't think God is a promise keeper. What if God said, I'll forgive your sins, but he only swore kind of like a double dare oath? Like, if your sins are really bad and it's going to cost me too much, I might go, yeah, but not for you. And if there's some doubt in the back of my mind that he's ever going to say that, then I'll never be able to fully trust him because I'll always be afraid he's going to pull the rug out from under me like Lucy whipping that football out from Charlie Brown, right? I'm always afraid. I have to know, I have to believe that he is trustworthy when he says, no sacrifice is too great. I've already made the greatest sacrifice and it's enough. My son's sacrifice is enough to pay for your sins, so bank on it. God is trustworthy, and if he wasn't, there would be no heaven. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no Christianity. So this aspect of God's character is important, and we, as his people, are to reflect him. We are to be promise keepers, because that's what God is like. And the more people know his followers as men and women of their word, the more likely they will understand that God can be trusted with his word. We reflect him. Now, at this point, it would be easy to think that um, with all this talk of like swearing oaths and making vows, which is certainly not a normal, regular part of our life, it would be easy to think that this is maybe a little bit more of a first century issue than a 21st century issue. Like maybe, whew, we finally hit the first part. We, we've had some heavy-hitting passages of Scripture here these last couple of weeks. We've had some, some strong, heavy sermons dealing with heavy topics that like weigh on us all. And it, it might be like, whew, we finally hit the first one where it's kind of like, I don't have to worry about this one. <laughs> this one's easy. All I got to do to follow Jesus' rules here is not swear an oath. It's fine. I don't really do that anyway. <laughs> so I guess I'm good, Right? That may have made sense to them because of their cultural situation and whatever, but we don't have that kind of a cultural situation, so maybe we can finally get by with an easy Sunday and move on to the next paragraph. But, as you might suspect, it's not quite that simple. The issue isn't just about whether or not we formally swear oaths, because Jesus' whole point to the people in the first century was don't, stop, just, just don't. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a man or woman, of your word. Follow through on your promises. And we do use words and we make promises all the time. Some explicit, some implicit, but you can't live life without them. A couple of questions to throw out there to just spend a couple of minutes to help us think about this a little bit more. Uh, I have more questions at this point than answers. I want to toss the questions out to get us all thinking and encourage us to maybe continue these conversations later today around our tables or coffee shops with friends or wherever we end up. Uh, Just four questions to get us thinking about how being a person of our word may apply in a modern context. Here's, Here's one question. Am I making promises that I don't think of as promises, but they really are and, and we're all making them every day? We just kind of put them in a different category in our mind. So we don't think Jesus' teaching applies, but maybe it does. 
couple examples, kind of flesh this out a little bit. Um, do you have a family? Husbands and wives, for example, love each other, serve each other, and submit to one another in very specific ways. Uh, and it's not just marriages. Parents provide for their children, certainly emotionally, financially, and so forth. Um, if you've given rise to another life, you have a built-in parental responsibility. It's not like, you know, somebody from the government comes by and says, okay, well, now will you sign on the dotted line to take care of this child and you have the option yes or no? I mean, it's kind of like whether you signed or not, that's your child, right? It, it's on you to care for them, especially when they're younger and can't care for themselves. We provide for them. We guide them. We nurture them. We meet their needs. Children respect their parents' authority and understand that there is an authority figure in mom and an authority figure in dad that I need to obey. We don't always do it perfectly, but we recognize the obligation. And it's not good enough for the you know, six-year-old or eight-year-old or 10-year-old to say, you know what, remind me where I signed on the dotted line saying I was going to obey you. I never made that vow. I never promised. I don't care. Have you eaten dinner for the last 10 years? Get your room clean. Yeah, I mean, that's like how it works, right? It's built into the relationship. There are commitments. There are promises. We don't always think of them as promises because we haven't signed on a dotted line, but they're there. Shift gears. Do you have a job? Have you ever had a job? To be an employee is to make promises to your employer, to show up on time, to do the job duties as prescribed, and maybe other things. Maybe your employer has a dress code, and so you agree to dress in a certain way and not dress in other ways when you consent to accept the job. And we're very familiar with the idea of accepting a job, and we're probably familiar with the idea that the employer can dictate certain conditions of employment that we are obligated to follow. So far, that's pretty easy to follow. Do we think of those as promises? I have promised under the conditions of this employment to do these things. Employers, likewise, provide a safe working environment. They provide on-time pay. Even if you work for yourself, you potentially have employees. You have a government to which you make promises to run a business. You have customers and so forth. The point I'm trying to make is this. Virtually every human relationship has either explicitly stated or strongly implied promises and commitments made to it. Most of those we understand. Do we think of them as promises? Or do we merely think of them as obligations? As if there's a difference. Is there? It's worth thinking about. By the way, it's not always just relationships either. Participating in the economy, which is really hard not to do, have you noticed? Entails promises. Anybody ever taken out a mortgage and bought a house? You know the mountain of paperwork you have to sign, right? One of the many switchbacks on that route of mountainous paperwork that you sign is called a promissory note. You know why they call it that? Because <laughs> we're making a promise to pay back the money that we're borrowing. If you've ever had a mortgage or signed an apartment or car lease or whatever, again, we're used to the idea of I'm under contract, I'm obligated. But do we think of those as promises? I've given my word that to the very best of my ability, I'm going to be good for this. Or do we view it as, a, well, I should do it. I will if I can. If I can't, eh, oh well. No big deal. 
every mortgage, every lease, even your cell phone contract. It's a promise to meet certain obligations. Do we see that as an issue of personal integrity or mere financial convenience? Here's another question. So the first one, are there promises we're making that we just only think of as promises so we don't think it applies? Secondly, are good motives sometimes leading me to make rash promises? Lots of possible examples of this. Um, the classic church atrium one is a great one. I'm talking to somebody. I hear what's going on in their life. They're dealing with something kind of rough right now. You know, they're in a hard time. I'm like, oh, man, I feel terrible for this person. And my motives suddenly are good. I suddenly want to encourage that person. I want to help them feel a little bit better. I want to help them not feel quite so alone. I want to help them know that somebody else cares and is going to be thinking about them. And so I give the classic, I'll pray for you. Anybody ever done that and then failed to follow through? And maybe even when I said it, I had the best of intentions. I mean, I wasn't deliberately trying to deceive this person. But did I actually consider when am I going to pray for them? Um, is my week going to allow me the time to pray for them? Am I going to write it down or find some way to make sure that I remember to pray for them? I mean, whatever. But it is so easy to kind of, with the best of intentions, oh, because I want you to feel better. I want you to feel encouraged. I make a promise. I'll pray for you. And then I don't see him for three weeks and I run across him again. I'm like, oh, hey, how's that situation going? And vaguely in the back of my mind, there's that slightly guilty, I think I said I was going to pray for them. And I'm not sure I've thought about it once in the last three weeks, right? Is that the end of the world? Probably not. Is it an issue of making a promise and keeping my word? I think so. Are good motives leading me to make rash promises? Sometimes we make commitments that we just haven't thought through, and our motives are good, but our reputation, and if we're God's followers, to some extent his reputation is on the line, and whether or not we follow through. Another question. What does my behavior train the people around me to expect from me. It's kind of looking at the whole am I a promise keeper thing from the other side, from the, from the experience of people who are around me, who, who experience me and relationship with me. Um, you know, again, thousands of examples. I, I, may go, I may go tell my kids, like, hey, it's Tuesday, and on Saturday morning, why don't we go, go out and do something fun? And we're like, oh, okay, that sounds good. We'll go do that Saturday. And again, sort of like the previous question, maybe it's my good motives. I want to be a good dad. I want to have some good time with my family. But I, you don't all have this problem, <laughs> I have been known a time or two to not completely think through the details of my schedule before I throw out a promise like that. Well, come to find out, you know, I have just a brutal week. And by the time I get to Friday night, I am exhausted. I'm spent and so I want to veg, and so I stay up late and I watch a movie, right? And then I go to bed super late, and so I sleep in on Saturday. And then I get up and I forgot, ah, we're supposed to go to the so-and-so's place, and we got to do this other thing Saturday morning. Now there's no time. i got to go back to my kids, and like, I know I said we'd go do this, but, you know, this other thing came up, and I overslept, and I can't. End of the world? Probably not. Is it an issue of keeping my word? I think so. When I've made those kinds of mistakes um, and either gone to my wife or my kids to apologize, um, one of the things that's common, I, I do it too, one of the things that's common in our family is our first response is usually, oh, it's okay, right? That's like a cultural thing. It's okay. 
And I think what we mean by that is, I'm not devastated, I'm okay, and I forgive you. I think that's what we mean when we say that. But sometimes, uh, and Amy and I have done this with each other too, sometimes we'll, we'll gently grab those words and say, you know, actually, it's not okay. <laughs> um, it, it's not fine. It's not like there isn't a problem. I said we were going to do something, and I did not deliver. And that's on me, because I didn't plan it well, or you know, whatever the situation was. And so if by that you mean, you know, I forgive you, and, and I'm okay, then that's great. That's what I need to hear. But it's actually not okay, because I don't want to train my family to think that maybe at best, yeah, he's got a good heart, he means well, but when he says he's going to do this, I can't always count on him, and there are times that I've done that. I'll take care of this, and I don't take care of it, so the next time I promise to take care of it, you can kind of see the look on the face, like, yeah, thanks, we'll see. I'm like, oh, what am I training people around me to expect? What does my character reflect? One more. We could ask lots of questions, but here's one more. When I do make promises, do I make promises to make myself look good? Or do I make promises with the express intention of making God look good? This is kind of the motivation, you know, question. I could tell my boss or my coworker or a customer, hey, I'm going to handle this issue. And maybe I volunteer for it because... I want to show myself to be somebody who is a positive contributor. And that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but my motivator there is I want to make sure I'm seen in the correct light. And then later I discover, whoa, wait a minute, there's a reason nobody else picked up this problem. (laughs) It's going to take a lot more to deal with than what I was planning on, and suddenly now I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think I have the time for it. And so I start to try to weasel out of it or farm it off on somebody else. I said I was going to do it, but I didn't necessarily count the cost. And now that I realize what that commitment made uh, is going to take in order to keep, I want to find a way to get out of it. Or do I see this as an opportunity to stay true to my word because God is true to his word? Drath read a few minutes ago from Psalm 15. Reflecting on the character of a follower of God, it says this, Psalm 15, verses 1 to 4. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? That's kind of an Old Testament Hebrew way of saying, like, who gets to be in heaven? Who gets to be with God? Who do you approve of, God? And the rest of the short psalm answers the question. The one who walks blamelessly and does what's right speaks truth in his heart. One who doesn't slander with his tongue or do evil to his neighbor or take a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord. And then listen to this, the end of verse four. And one who swears to his own hurt and still does not change. That's the kind of person that God is pleased with. One who swears, there's our language again, he makes a vow, he makes a promise, and he later realizes, oh, it's going to cost me more than I thought it would, and so do I try to get out of the promise now, or do I pay it anyway? And the one who says, I'm going to pay it anyway to stay true to my word is the one of whom God approves. But as we turn the corner and kind of head to home here, it's important to remember that we've already seen the first two principles of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Two worlds are colliding. God is a promise keeper. Our world tends not to be. God has sent us as representatives of promise keeping. And we can probably all think of areas that we could do better at that. And we should. And that's good. But remember Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to do it. Because this kind of life doesn't just result from human effort. Being a person of my word doesn't just come from trying to identify areas where I maybe make rash promises and trying to think a little bit more before I speak. That's usually a good idea, (laughs) but that's not going to totally fix the problem. I can't make myself a perfect promise keeper just through sheer will and effort for the simple reason that at some point, (laughs) just like Horton the Elephant in that make-believe story, being true to my word is going to actually leave me worse off than if I just got out from under my obligation. And, and there's just no getting around it. There's no denying that. I may do the right thing, but I'll actually be worse off. And that could leave me feeling, sort of feeling the loss simply for some vague ideal that like, I guess I was a person of my word and hopefully that matters. But the bottom line is, I said I'd pay for something. I had no idea how much it was going to cost. And now I'm going to have to give up something else to pay for it. And I'm feeling the pinch of that. But I was a person of my word. Well, whoop de doodle how do I balance my checkbook this month? You see what I'm saying? When it comes down to it, sometimes keeping our word just costs more. And if being true to my word is simply just kind of this aspirational ideal, my heart will never sustain in it. At some point, it'll be easy to keep small promises. But when the big ones come along, I'm going to say, I'm out. Now, it was great that everything worked out wonderfully in the make-believe story for Horton the Elephant, and it genuinely was better for him. But we don't always have the promise that it will work out better for us if we keep our word. Sometimes we'll be worse off. And the only way to continue to be a person of our word in that kind of a case is to have a whole new heart that loves God's glory more than it loves comfort and security. That's why this is such a heart issue. It's, it's an issue of what are, we, what are we loving? What are we driven by? What are we motivated for? Because only if I love God's glory more than my own gain will short-term self-denial for the purpose of maintaining my integrity actually be a sweet thing in my heart. I will actually get pleasure out of being a person of my word. And it is that sweetness, that pleasure that will keep me at it no matter the cost. I've got to experience the sweetness of it deep in my soul. And in order to do that, I need a new heart. So God promised clear back in Jeremiah 31. In the Old Testament, he said someday when the Messiah comes, that was eventually Jesus, but before Jesus was here, God said one thing that Jesus is going to do when he gets here is he says, I'm going to give my people a new heart. In fact, what he says there in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, is he says, I'm going to take my law, all the rules of the Old Testament, and put it in my people's hearts. And what that means is, I'm going to give my people the capacity to love the law enough that they will want to follow it. They don't simply do it out of duty or obligation. That requires a heart transplant. And that's what Jesus is here to give us. So even as we wrap up this morning and think about maybe all the ways that I could be a better person of my word, if I'm a follower of Christ, those are good things to think about. 
But Jesus is urging us to understand that he's raising the bar so high that we can't meet it so that we will instead depend on him to say, Jesus, help me to want to follow through on every promise because it reflects your character and taste the sweetness of that. May we rely on our Savior to make us the kind of people who live out a totally new mantra. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. A Christian is faithful 100% because our God is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truthfulness of your word and of your character. It is not at all difficult to see how far short we fall from your holiness, your truth, and your goodness. And so, Father, we come to you today as your people, um, desperately desiring, so many of us would identify as your disciples, your followers, and we would want to see your purposes made true in our lives, more so than they are today. I pray that you would meet every single one of us where we're at. God, where we um, are too comfortable, would you afflict us? Where we are too afflicted, would you comfort us? As the saying goes, would you bring conviction of our sin where we rationalize our selfishness? but would you also bring great hope to us when we feel the weight and the burden of our sin to come to you as a people confessing our need for you and asking for a whole new heart that will love to reflect you more than anything else. Through that sweetness, would you make us a people who are people of our word, that people who are around us might get a taste of what you're like as they interact with us. Make your name great through us and through the members of this church and receive our worship now. We pray in Christ's name, amen.